6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verse 5. The scene is um, when the spies, these 12 guys, were selected to go and do some reconnaissance. They come back, and 10 of them are really up, you know, nervous and frightened. They speak of the giants in the land. We'll talk more about that when we get to another subject. But, but anyway, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, hey, come on, guys, let's go. God's on our side. Who can be against us? That sort of thing. Chapter 14, verse 1, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would God that we had died in this wilderness? Would you say they're ungrateful? It wasn't so long ago that they were feeling the sting of the taskmaster's whips. It wasn't that long ago they were abused slaves. God, through the most incredible theatrics, delivers them. And how quickly they forget. And now they're murmuring, and they're saying, oh, would God that we had died in the wilderness. They go on, verse 3, And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And so on, right? Let's find out how the Lord deals with this. We'll, we'll um, skip on down here to um, verse 26 of the same chapter. The Lord spake again unto Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all who were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, who have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swore to make you dwell therein, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and uh, Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, whom ye sh you said would be a prey, or should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. Heavy trip. For 38 years, they wander until they die off. They got the prayer answered. The famous, famous wilderness wanderings. Verse 34, But as for you, your carcasses shall follow this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years, 
and bear your harlotries until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness and uh, so forth. Heavy trip. Very heavy trip. Now, there's a tendency for you and I to read these quaint stories in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses, and regard that as, well, they were under the law, that was them, we're under grace, right? And indeed we are, don't misunderstand me. Lest you think I'm on some kind of side trip, I'm going to turn to one of my favorite commentators. One of my favorite commentators in Scripture is a guy by the name of Paul, okay? And turn with me to his first letter to the Corinthian church, and he has set aside a chapter on this for us. Chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to be interested in about the first 14 verses, but before we get into that, I'd like to start with verse 11. We're going to peek into the middle of this to get a very important insight. Chapter 10, you'll discover, talks about Israel in the wilderness from verses 1 on. But before we get into that, notice verse 11. Paul tells us, now all these things happened unto them. Why? For examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. You and I sitting in this room are the ones that the Holy Spirit has written Numbers 14 and others, and 16, and 21, and 25, and others, for you and I, not just of Israel, and not just for us to look back and say, gee, those poor people, they were under the law, and my goodness, why couldn't they understand, you know? It's amazing how many people see, uh, uh, you know, the movie, The Ten Commandments, Unsaved, they see the movie, and one of the things that I've heard highlighted to me was, they can't understand the end of the movie, how these people, having seen all that firsthand, could then fall away, you know? <laughs> well, A, they did, and B, look at us. We have much more than they, and do we fall away? We must. That's why Judah's writing to us. That's why Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and so that's where we're headed. I'm going to suggest to you a basic principle of the Scripture, and that is that nothing's extraneous. I don't believe that there's a name, a number, a place in the Scripture that's not there for our learning. Admittedly, a lot of it is perhaps in the byways and, and the side trips, but the central themes are clearly for our learning. I think I've shared with you what some of the Kabbalistic rabbis uh, belief. They say that when the Messiah comes, he will interpret all things. He will even interpret the spaces between the letters. That's how they, they're serious. That's how they, they believe that the, the text is so mystical. The, the numerical value of the letters and every detail has meaning, and they muster up some amazing insights from all that. I really, I, I lean that way. I'm perhaps a New Testament Kabbalist, I suppose. I really, I think they're on the right track. So I, but now this is easy though, because here Paul tells us in verse 11, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, not the person sitting next to you, not the people down the street in another church, you and I, right here and now. So let's take a look at 
um, Israel in the wilderness, starting at verse 10. And he's going to make a lot of, of uh, comments here. I might, well, let's, let's, I'll just jump in. Verse 10. Moreover, brethren, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual food and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they all drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was, was Christ. And by the way, is that we're not going to take the time tonight, because this is, I leave the easy stuff, you know, aside. Take rock or stone throughout the Scripture from beginning to end, and it's an amazing study. It's an amazing study. The rock that, gave, that was struck, that was smitten for you and I, gives forth water a second time. It was to give forth water, and Moses didn't follow directions, and he smit, he wasn't supposed to, and that's when he lost his commission. But again, there was lessons the Lord was trying to teach in terms of that rock. The stone cut without hands. The stone in Daniel 2, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, all the way through the Scripture. That's a study you can take on your own with a commentary, rock, stone, whatever. Study it through. You'll be amazed how the Holy Spirit indulges in puns from cover to cover, and again and again and again. It points to none other than the Mashiach of Israel. And here is one of those places, and there's many, this is one of those places where that's not some coincidental harebrained Chuck Mister idea. Paul himself indulges that pun right here. You see, the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ is intended to be visible in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. But that's another study. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And we're going to go into some, some other studies here. Before we charge into the specifics here, let me just summarize some other insights about Israel in the wilderness. There is some typology going on, in addition to the actual historical event of Egypt and Pharaoh and Israel. The Holy Spirit has also used that typologically. Egypt is a type or model of what? The world. Pharaoh is a type of the prince of this world, right? Okay. Moses was, innate, was the person supernaturally called to be the deliverer. He was their leader and thus is a type of, of Jesus Christ. The Red Sea here is even made a model of baptism. Um, the pillar, the cloud, the fire, the Shekinah glory is a type of Holy Spirit. Fair enough. Manna, the bread of life, right? Or even denotatively, that's connotatively, denotatively the Lord's Supper, if you will. And there's references made to that throughout the, the epistles and things. And the water from the smitten rock, the living water, you know, you can, you can go on and on and on. And those things are not out in left field, they're central theology and not a problem. But here... Paul is writing to the Corinthians about being those that were overthrown in the wilderness. The people that were overthrown were out of Egypt, but not in Canaan. Understand where they were at. They're probably where all of you and I are at. Out of Egypt. The very fact you're in this Bible study implies you're called out of the world, at least at some level of maturity. And yet, 
the presumption I'm making is that we're not crossed over the Jordan. Now, this leads to another issue that uh, I won't have time to develop fully here, but I commend to you the Joshua tapes if you're interested in this. There, is, there are some misconceptions about the typology of Canaan and the Jordan, and these misconceptions emerge out of some naive songs. Crossing over the Jordan isn't dying. Canaan, the promised land, is not heaven. Chuck, what do you mean? Because there's battles there. I don't expect when we get to heaven to have to draw a sword and, you know, I mean, that's not what the Scripture, in my view, teaches. Canaan has battles. It has victories. When Joshua led the children of Israel into Canaan, there were victories, there were also defeats. But the idea of crossing over to the promised land was to enter into that which God has for us. And that's preached upon by the writer to the epistle to Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4. We'll make a brief allusion to that tonight. And it's also what part of what we're, Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10. So the first idea is to recognize that while it's undesirable to wander in the wilderness and it's desirable to cross over the Jordan and get into Canaan land, don't equate that with dying going to heaven, or you miss the point. You with me? There's something God would have you cross over and enter into while you're here in your walk, into his rest, taking advantage of his promises in a more comprehensive way than most of us do. Most of us make a 40-year wandering of an 11-day journey. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. That's why Israel spent those 38 years wandering around is to give us an example of understanding that had they accepted God's word on faith, they would have entered the promised land 38 years earlier. It was their unbelief that kept them from appropriating to themselves that which God had provided for. And you and I are in the same boat. We don't appropriate to ourselves all that God has for us. And that's what I believe is the main theme here in 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3 and 4 and other passages of, of like kind. When you think of Canaan, don't think of heaven, think of victory. Now, is this a theme appropriate to the church? Yes. 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3 and 4, and Revelation chapter 3. Remember the letter to Sardis. Remember the seven letters of seven church? I won't review all that tonight. If you, if you know what I'm talking about, review your notes. If not, forget it. No, it'd be too hard to get explained. Remember, we love the it's seven letters of seven churches. We love, you know, especially as Protestants, we love to work over the Catholics in Thyatira, right? The one that follows Thyatira was Sardis. And if Thyatira is the Catholics, which is not that simple, but if it was, then Sardis is the Reformation. Sardis is one of the two churches of which nothing good is said. So before we get too proud as Protestants, read Sardis carefully. Thou hast a name written, but art dead, Jesus says to the church at Sardis. A name, a denomination, a label, a banner, but no life. And that's what I believe we're talking about here. Wandering in the wilderness rather than crossing over and conquering. That's, that's the issue. Now, there's an analogy I was going to get into, but I have a feeling if I get too far off the track, we won't even get through verse 5 tonight. That's Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He had three stages. He was dead, but then he was raised from the dead. 
and he was entangled in his grave clothes. Second stage was to get him unentangled. He was dead, he was defeated. When he was undefeated, he became dangerous, dead, defeated, and dangerous. He was so dangerous they had a plot against his life, if you recall. We're in the same boat. We're out of Egypt, wandering around the wilderness and grabbing a promise here and there, but not embracing the whole counsel of God, not entering in to that rest, as he calls it in Hebrews. I think we got down what, to, to verse 5. Um, verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, neither be idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That phrase has to do when the leader was out of sight, up the hill, and they got the golden calf thing going, remember? The leader was out of sight. We get in trouble when our leader's out of sight. And of course, they indulge in idolatry, right? Is idolatry, well, sure, that's a threat for the Old Testament types, sure. Gee, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, a worldly church. Did they have a threat of idolatry? Sure. Um, and that's going to come up again in verse 14. This thing's going to climax in verse 4. This passage is going to climax in verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. John writes that in his first letter. John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. How many of you have an idol at home? I don't mean a little, you know, sort of a shrine with candles and some kind of thing. What is an idol? Anything that you put between you and the Lord. Anything that displaces his rightful place in your life is an idol. You start defining it that way, you can make quite a long list. We all have them. We may not call them that. But uh, the emphasis, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New. 1 Corinthians 10. Letters of you know, John and so forth. Um, caution us to flee from idolatry. And the idolatry that I think threatens us is not the idolatry of some denomination that probably the people in this room don't subscribe to anyway. The idolatry is the idolatry that you and I create, embrace, and establish in our life. It can be a career. It can be a hobby. It can be any passion that ought to be a passion you have for the Lord and the things of Him. Going on, verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Direct fornication is obviously a gigantic problem in our society. There's derivative aspects of it. Movies, novels, television, music. Some of the music, I think, would shock Paul that you and I play on our radios. Some of us... Don't listen carefully or we turn it off. Galatians 5.13 says, You've been called to liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. That broadens the definition considerably. Small point, some of you who have been various... And incidentally, this whole thing this uh, says it fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. For those of you that want to track that down, and I won't take the time tonight, now, but you can for your notes, is Numbers 25. There's an occasion in Numbers 25 where God punishes them by sending a plague. And if you read Numbers 25, verse 9, you'll discover 24,000 died from that plague. 
right? Now you will find some of your friends, your, your skeptics down the street, will say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Because Numbers 25, 9, because they read that in some pamphlet, Numbers 25, 9 says 24,000, and here Paul doesn't know better. He says 23,000. Paul is writing by the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say? 23,000 fell the first day. No contradiction. You want to split hairs? No, I don't think it's a textual error. I think Paul, the Holy Spirit has given Paul a more precise insight. I don't know where he got it, but for the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, Neither let us put Christ to the test, as some of them also tested him and were destroyed by serpents. It might be fun to take a look at that. This is one of the more fun ones. Numbers 21. Let's turn to Numbers. A lot of, the whole thing tonight is out of the book of Numbers. Time was a little longer. We take the book of Numbers, but that's probably a little. Numbers chapter 21. We'll pick it up about verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There they go again, huh? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. In other words, they don't like the manna. I'm going to suggest that neglect of the manna is tempting the Lord. I want you to focus on what they did wrong. They murmured against the manna, right? Doesn't sound too bad. You expect to get their wrists slapped, right? And see what God does. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. You know, one interesting thing the Lord tries to get across to us is that he doesn't mess around. You know, he goes out of his way to instruct us. And you, of course, know the story of what happens. Wherefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have, notice the first thing they confess, see? And we have spoken against the Lord and against thee, praying to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent that is a brazen serpent. The concept of fire and the concept of brass, linguistically are linked, because brass was the metal they had that could withstand heat. Therefore, brazen things were typically, things that had to sustain heat, like an altar, were made of brass. Brass and fiery were Levitically linked. Make us a, and if a fiery serpent and set it, out, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, and he beheld the serpent of bronze, that he lived. You go about your business, you get a snake bite, you look up on the hill, and there's the, this pole, which by tradition is a cross. And on it, there's a brass serpent. And if you looked at that, you made it. If you're doing that back in Israel's day, it must have been strange. And you and I reading this might also think it's strange, but for Jesus Christ himself illuminating this for us by saying, as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up, right? Now, this really gets freaky when you think it through. Because that brass serpent that God, God sets this up here to create a pun. Technically, you'd call it a pun. He has set up a model of none other than the cross at Calvary. You're saying that, bra that brass serpent is a type of whom? Jesus Christ. 
because Jesus himself identifies himself with it. Just as this Moses did this, so shall the Son of Man be left. He will be put up on a pole and raised up. So whoever looks to him would be saved. Over him the serpent would have no power. Interesting, isn't it? Strange that Jesus Christ can be typified by a brazen serpent. Brass means judgment. Serpent means sin. What's all that about? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he was made sin for us. You and I have no capacity to understand what that means. The Holy One of God was made sin for us. That's why he could scream, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As is quoted in Psalm 22 and as, as it comes from the cross. Jesus Christ identifies himself with his brazen serpent in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. You know the story. I have to give you an interesting historical footnote. How many of you are familiar with a symbol of the medical profession called the caduceus? Especially the army and so forth, they have a, a, a little cross with two serpents, right? And that's supposed to come from Escalapius, which was the god of medicine, right? Except what's interesting, incidentally, he was presumably the son of Apollo, born, but he actually was born in Alexandria. It's interesting that the symbol of Escalapius, which came from this earlier historical event, was a single serpent on a cross. In the Greek mythology, Hermes has two serpents, and it erroneously was adopted as a symbol of the medical profession. And I'm particularly amused by this because that's actually the symbol of trade. So if you doctors, you know, if you're okay. So uh, anyway, so much of all of that. Um, another interesting insight about the brazen serpent is that some um, 690 years later, the brazen serpent was still in the hands of Israel and was being worshiped. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.